Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. How's it going? How are you feeling? Are you feeling all right? Now, what happens now? What happens now? Do we go back to getting colds and flus and mild things that, uh, I mean, it was kind of amazing. For a year, we didn't get nothing. Got nothing. No colds, no flus, no bugs, no stomach things. Just a lot of mental anxiety. I became very intimate with all the psychosomatic symptoms that stress and panic and terror can cause in in your body on a day-to-day basis. I still kind of have some of it, man. I still kind of have some of it. So I don't know where I left this, but I feel like I talked to you about it before. But the third watermelon, the watermelon, the melon of hope, the melon of hope turned out to be a good melon, turned out to be a solid melon. The color was not right, but the texture and the sweetness was on the fucking money. So thank you for your concern. Thank you for your your prayers, your thoughts. Uh, It worked out. That third melon that I bought in a panic uh, turned out to be the best melon. It was a nice place to to arrive. It was like, all right, that was the full arc. The bad melon, the override melon, what's in this one? Give it a few days, sit with it, look at it, dream about it, slice it up, perfect. How often does that happen? Closure. Danny Elfman is on the show today, and uh, it was exciting to talk to him. Um, he is probably the most prolific film score composer we've ever had on the show. Maybe of all time, he's done scores for more than 100 movies. Uh, we'll talk about several of them, many of them, and also for TV shows, stage productions, and concert halls. He was also in the art rock band Oingo Boingo. I'm on the outside. I'm on the outside. I'm on the outside now. This is where it all begins. On the outside looking in. Uh, He's got his uh, first solo album uh, in 37 years. It's coming out next week. That's why he's here. The only reason I know that song is because my buddy Damon in high school Uh, was into Oingo Boingo. None of us knew about Oingo Boingo. He had that one record, and he would play it in the car, the the cassette tape all the time, and that's how I knew about Oingo Boingo, was from Damon. I wonder how Damon's doing. Does anyone know how Damon... Who's got eyes on Damon? Anyone got eyes on Damon Milet? Anybody? Damon Milet? Uh, Please, uh, could somebody get back to me about Damon? Thank you. Thank you very much. Been doing the comedy. 
been going at it, been hammering away. My tone's a little intense. It's a, it's a little dark. It's a, a little aggravated, but not too much. But it seems to be, it feels like my anger is not, uh, is not really that um, threatening or off-putting anymore. I must, have, I must have been humbled enough by the big wheel of life to be cranky without being jarring. I've waited my whole life to be humbled this much by life to be aggravated and still kind of fun. I can be pretty consistently funny on purpose. And that has been my life goal, folks. What do you do for a living? I'm, I'm pretty consistently funny on purpose. Most of the time, not funny. Engaging, not funny. Charismatic, perhaps, not funny. Uh, interesting, maybe. Um, compelling, sometimes. Funny, when I want to be on purpose. I've, I've got that skill now. I've got it. Occasionally, I think about uh, guns. Do I need a gun? I've talked about this before. I don't. I don't know. Is this an old guy thing? Is this an LA thing? Is this a? Is this an end of the world thing? You know, there's guns around. Do I need one? And then what? What do I get? Like, I don't want a pistol. I thought maybe a shotgun because if I, if I have a shotgun and someone comes in to take me out. I can be at the top of the stairs with my shotgun, a pump shotgun, just like so put a, you know, with a shotgun, you're going to hit something, something you're going to get, your, your, your odds are improved. But now I'm talking about taking a human life. Is that something I want to do? All it can do is enable me to go down shooting. And then I started to think about it. Isn't that what it's always about? When you really think about old guys with guns. Just think about who they are. Think about their life. Think about the deep sort of weird burning ember of rage at the core of their being, existentially speaking. How many fucking people really have their shit together enough to surrender to the inevitable with a certain amount of peace of mind? How many? Not many. How many people like know they're going to die and are okay with dying because they've lived life to their fullest and they understand as rational people that we as animals die and that's the end of it how many not many how many people are out there with these fucking unresolved problems with these chips on their shoulders with these things they never did with these poorly parented insides that are full of rage and hate and objectification and fucking snot and fucking fire what about those people, 60, 70, 80-year-olds with just a fury inside them and a brain slowly going blank, being filled with exciting garbage meant to create more rage inside them but for specific reasons? What about those people? Those people, most people, most men want to go down shooting. They don't care at what. They don't care at who. They don't have to have a reason. They just want to feel it. They just want to feel the firepower of going down shooting. How is that a solution for humans in this fucking world, this country? That's what it is. People who kill people then kill themselves. That's how they make sense of it. Broken, angry, rage vessels. How do we fix it? Huh? How do we fix it? See, I can be funny on purpose. I told is that I just did that was hilarious. I just decided out loud that I'm not getting a gun. Thanks for helping out. What the fuck?
Help me. I'm not getting it. I'm not getting a shotgun. I'm not. That can go nowhere good. Yeah. And uh, all of the above. Not getting it. A, you kill somebody. B, you get killed. C, you kill yourself. D, all of the above. Don't eat it. Don't eat the barrel. See? See where the brain goes? I'm not that guy. I'm not going to go out like that. Uh, Danny Elfman, his new album is called Big Mess. It's out next Friday, June 11th. You can get it wherever you get music. He's also bringing back the live Nightmare Before Christmas stage concert this year. That's on Friday, October 29th at Bank of California Stadium. Tickets are on sale now. And also, there's a point during this talk where we're talking about David Bowie's Scary Monsters. And he says Adrian Blue played guitar on it, and I'm pretty sure it's Robert Fripp. I should have stuck by my guns. I should have done the research in the moment. But he was pretty committed to Adrian Ballou. But I knew it was Fripp in my heart, and it is Fripp. It is. I'm not saying this to undermine Danny in any way. I just want to make sure that, that the information is out there for those of you who need to know that. Because I remember being excited about it when I was in high school. And Scary Monsters came out and Robert Fripp was on it because somebody had turned me on to Fripp by that point, not King Crimson, solo Fripp. And I knew Fripp was an interesting guitar player. And man, is Scary Monsters a good album. So there you go. Just selling a couple records for David Bowie on my way to, uh, to talking to Danny Elfman, which I will do now, right now. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. All right, so now that we're on the mic, tell me about uh, Pakistan. Oh, man, it was great. You know, um, I don't travel as much as I used to, but yeah. th- this was uh, right during the when the Taliban, you know, it was before 2001, it was late 90s. So what, what, what compelled you? Is that a vacation? Yeah, that's my idea of a vacation. <laughs> and uh, I had a neighbor. That yeah. lived up the block. I lived in Topanga Canyon. Yeah. And uh, we kind of bonded because both of us back in the 70s, 70, like when we were really young. Yeah. I spent a year in West Africa and he spent this year, same age, traveling through Afghanistan. Yeah. And so we kind of took these uh, similar but different trips. And I went back only once, but he started going back regularly. And now, you know, he became uh, an importer of uh, fabrics and... Uh, yeah, that's. I mean, I can understand that that journey. Those guys who import export. Well, I he'd always said you got to come along with me once because yeah. I was so interested. And one yeah. year I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. Wow. And uh, it was great. I mean, yeah. I, oh my god. Was it? But it wasn't uh, frightening. A little bit. Yeah. But you know, who gives a fuck? Yeah. It's just like this is like 
cool. And, you know, the Afghani people, I mean, the thing that I understand is that they're so warm. If you felt like you were in danger, he's, you know, you could almost go to anybody's house and knock on it and say, I need your protection. Really? And they're really compelled to take you in. Because uh, Well, they've also been dealing with whatever's terrifying you for, for centuries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're, they're, they have a saying called the guest before Allah. And, um, you know, uh, I, I would talk with people and yeah. my friend would go, you know, he was probably Taliban. And, uh, but their attitude was like, we're very much against your George Bush, your government. Yeah. But you are yeah. welcome here. Yeah. You seem okay. Well, but not even seem okay. You don't represent them. Right. And they, they differentiate the two. Uh-huh. Like, we're down with your government, but you're our guest. You're here. You're our guest, and you're welcome. So they would know by, uh, by mostly because you're not wearing a uniform. I, <laughs> I can't even say how they would know. I think it was just the attitude of, you're our guest, yeah. and we welcome you. Yeah. I never felt threatened. I, I have these great photos. Once, once I was sitting in a little cafe, and uh, people love their pictures taken. Yeah. I had two cameras. I looked like a life photographer. <laughs> yeah. You know, it yeah. was like these two big fucking cameras. Yeah. And uh, the guy uh, taps me on the shoulder next to me, and he goes, you know, it's the universal language for click, 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 yeah, click. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I pull up my camera, he opens up his, his vest, and he's got, like, bullets on both right, sides. Yeah, yeah. And he gave me a big smile. And Like, what year was that? Oh, I don't know, 90-something, late 90s. And this was, how long were you there? I was there for about a month. Oh, that's how you travel? You go for a month? You know, when I can. When I look at your like when I look at your output, I'm like, where did you find a month? I mean, maybe it was three <laughs> weeks. But, you know, it's like when I... I was always wired for if I had however many weeks off, I'd yeah. go somewhere. When did you go to Africa? Oh, I was 18. And you just went? Yeah, yeah, I just went. What was the uh, impetus? Well, I mean, I wanted to travel around the world. Yeah. And uh, so me and my buddy, we spent like a year planning this trip through North Africa to India, Asia, work our way back to Los Angeles. After high school? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but we took a wrong turn. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like my whole life has been a series of crazy coincidences. Yeah, yeah. So what I didn't account is that I would land in Paris first. Yeah. And my brother played with this, uh, he was a drummer with the musical theatrical troupe called Le Grand Magic Circus. And, uh, Here? In Paris. Oh, in Paris. And I happened to just pick up a violin before that trip, my first instrument ever. Yeah. And I was practicing it, and I came out one day, and my brother was sitting there with Jerome Savary, the, the director, and he goes, hey, Little Red, he called me. He <laughs> says, you know, you're not bad. You can play with us. Yeah. I go, really? I've only been playing like four or five months. Yeah. And he goes, nah, you're good enough. And I toured with them for a couple of weeks. And now my friend- What kind of music was that? It was like crazy, I don't know, crazy French yeah. something cabaret uh -huh. tunes. Was it, so it was like uh, chaotic? Yeah, of, uh, yeah, really chaotic. Right. The shows were chaotic. Yeah. There were like 20 people on stage. It right, was like, right. And, the, and audiences would get rowdy and big theaters. And every now and then there'd be like, some shit would happen and chairs would start flying. And my brother would always like grab me, get my, get your violin out of here, get your violin out of here. <laughs> <laughs> what year is this? 1970. Oh, so things were crazy then. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty crazy. And then rather than going through North Africa onto Asia, I ended up in the Canary Islands and I got really interested through friends I made yeah. with a country called Mali Oh yeah, and the art and the fetish things that I saw. And suddenly the next thing I know, we're on a different trip. 
Right. We go to Mauritania and then head down to Mali. And I lived in Mali for a while. So this was just an adventure you were on. And your brother was already like a, a traveling musician? He was already like into theater and music. He was like a conga drummer. And, and you grew up here, right? Yeah. Wow. Los Angeles. So, you know, I ended up, that whole trip took a year. I never got to Asia, India, and, uh, you know, the Nepal like right. I planned, but I ended up. I ended up in Uganda when Idi Amin was in power. Oh, wow. And uh, just missed meeting him by like a minute. How would you have met him? Because I was going to uh, Murchison Falls and I was camping out. Yeah. I couldn't stay in the actual yeah. lodge. But he was just leaving where he had done like some dinner or something. And I, all these cars were driving off and they told me, says, oh, uh, President, <laughs> President Amin just left. You just missed him. Was it better off probably? You know... It, this is relevant to now because mm. the way people spoke of Idi Amin yeah. at that time, they didn't believe that he was going to do the shit he was going to do. This was the beginning of his reign. I would be in a taxi and I'd say, what do you, you know, what's with Idi Amin? He outlawed miniskirts. Yeah. And he goes, oh, dude, you don't take it seriously. He just says stuff. He just yeah, says yeah, stuff. Yeah. And just now it, it echoes of Donald Trump. Sure. He just says stuff. Yeah. You know, you ask people that are Trump, so what, he just said, what the fuck? He just said this thing. Right. No, no, no. He's just talking. He just right. said and stuff. the next thing you know, they're slaughtering people exactly. in the and streets. It's just like, um, that's how authoritarian. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're clowns initially. Yeah, and they called him the clown. Yeah. I mean. Buffoons. Buffoon. Isn't that exactly. wild? He was, he was considered a buffoon. And that's what makes him attractive to everybody. Yeah. You know, is that like, you know, they're kind of entertained. They're entertained. He says crazy stuff, but he won't do any of that. So when you went down there, like I'm, I'm trying to picture, like I always like talking to people that grew up in L.A. at that time because and, and was were, you were conscious in the 60s. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a subjective term, isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, I was somewhat conscious. But what was your uh, where'd you what part of town did you grow up? Baldwin Hills. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it was sort of like, uh, it's a black neighborhood now, primarily. Isn't yeah. It? I mean, I went to a mostly black school, Audubon in Crenshaw area. That's uh -huh. where I went to middle school. Yeah. And your, and your parents were what? School teachers. Oh. So yeah, there was a premium put on education in yeah, the house? Of course, I never went to college. You know, I was like, oh. uh, every school teacher's worst nightmare. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad my father lived long enough to like see me sell out the Universal Amphitheater. <laughs> like he did something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where was he from, here? He was from Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh -huh. and moved out here after the war, World War II. Huh. And uh, yeah, and became a school teacher. Wow, Wisconsin. Kenosha. How did, they, how did his family get there? How did he get there? Yeah. Uh, via Poland. Huh. So yeah. he was part of the uh, the uh, the the Midwestern Jews. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, his his father, because I remember his parents didn't speak a lot of English. Yeah. So I, I don't remember them super well, because I obviously I didn't speak Yiddish. And yeah. He never spoke that. Right. But that was there. They spoke Polish and Yiddish and probably Russian and probably three other languages. Yeah. Too. Yeah. You know. How they, right. Sure. Was because like uh, like Dylan the Zimmermans they're the like Wisconsin they're Minneapolis what's that Minnesota Jews right right like there was I think there was just jobs and farming and I yeah. don't know what yeah so Kenosha I think he was actually in the furniture business ah. retail furniture in yeah, Kenosha yeah. if yeah. I recall correctly and I my guess is that my father moved to Los Angeles first he I learned later that he yeah. wanted to be a big band trumpet player. Now, when I as a kid, I never even knew he played trumpet. Really, I discovered it later. 
He never he played when you were growing up? Never played and never even brought it up. Huh. But I think then his parents probably came out and after he did and settled out here. And you never knew he was a trumpet player? No, I found the trumpet in the closet. And he was like, oh, yeah, I used to play it. My mom said, he was really good. Oh, wow. And yeah. he let it go. He, he put it down. Yeah, he put it down. And he had no regrets. Huh. He was not a frustrated musician or anything. Comfortable either. people. Yeah. And you have one brother? One brother, yeah. And you guys just were like tearing it up in Los Angeles. Tearing it, tearing each other up. <laughs> <laughs> but like you sort of like, because I always picture the 60s in Los Angeles as being, were you on the periphery of show business at all? Did you travel? No. In? When? But I mean, in high school and stuff, what were you guys doing? Well, high school was a whole different, see, everything up to high school was one life. Yeah. Because I grew up, lived in Baldwin Hills. Yeah. No showbiz, nothing. You know, it. It wasn't until my parents moved uh, to West L.A. And that's where you started to, to meet the people. And that's where I met, understood, oh, what a dysfunctional family means, you know? It's like, okay, <laughs> yeah. they live in Malibu, dysfunctional. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I grew up in a real normal, boring, middle-class household. Yeah, and when does, like, when does music start to come in? Not till high school. And what did it look like? It was like pure luck. Yeah. Uh, the first friends I met. Yeah group of friends were like an arty crowd and, and this is like uh, this is like 60s arty well this would have been like yeah i mean like 68 69 mm. and um they played it a lot of them played my one one friend was already a trumpet player doing avant-garde composition huh. he turned me on to stravinsky oh yeah another friend crazy drummer yeah willie yeah and um you know we'd stay up all night getting stoned listening to jazz and like turn me up between jazz and Stravinsky between Miles Coltrane and Stravinsky that just turned my life around completely and uh reconfigured your brain totally yeah reconfigured my brain I like got out of rock and pop 100% were you in it well I mean I listened to the same stuff other kids did you know I'd grow up in the Beatles and sure, the Stones sure, and sure. all that stuff but yeah. suddenly no I just want the new uh, the new uh, Miles Davis. I want to hear what Eric Dolphy is doing. So that became suddenly I became interested in music only because all my friends did. Right. And was your brother playing at this point? He was a conga drummer. A conga drummer. Yeah. And he was like cool. He was like a hippie. Yeah. And living up in Haight Ashbury, had a little clothing store and playing drums. How old? Much older is he? Four, four and a half, four years. So you had that uh, like sort of uh, a guy who was a. Yeah, with the machete in front of you, at least cutting the way into the uh, counterculture. Well, what he taught me was how to keep my head down. Huh. You know, that's that's the second, third child. You know, he caught all the shit. Right, right. You know, yeah. getting stoned, long hair, the whole thing, caught the shit, caught yeah. the shit, caught the shit. Yeah. And I learned, all right, keep your grades good <laughs> and just lie <laughs> through your teeth and smile. Everything's fine. You'd be the good kid. Honey, you don't smoke. Oh, no, Mom. I'd be so <laughs> fucked up saying I was so good at, like, covering yeah. it up. I swear to God, I didn't tell her until I was 40 yeah. how much drugs I used to do oh. you know, back in high school. And she was still upset. Sure oh, my God, I failed as a mother. I said, Mom, I'm doing great. I mean, look, I'm, I've, got a, you know, I've got a great career. But I failed you. Oh. you were. She was still like. They still get hurt. Take it personally. 
And she says, why didn't you tell me? I said, because of this. Yeah, yeah. You see how you're reacting 25 (laughs) years later? Could you imagine how you would have reacted then? I was protecting you. Right. Our job as kids growing up was to protect our parents. From who we really were. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. The reality was just too hard for them, and we had to protect them. So- when you met these uh, these people, that when your mind was being blown by music, when did you start playing? Well, not until my last year when I was going off to my trip. The fiddle? Yeah, I decided to pick up a fiddle and take it with me on the trip. That was your first instrument? Yeah. Because I was trying to figure it out after looking at all uh, I looked at. Like, what do, what do you actually play? No, I, I uh, well... <laughs> What do I play well? Nothing. <laughs> I was totally always a jack of all trades, master of none. I could pick up any instrument sure. and learn to play something on it. Right. So for me, at that point, I was obsessed with uh, Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli, that was his violinist, the jazz violinist yeah, from the yeah, 30s. Yeah. And so I wanted to play like Stefan Grappelli. And so um, when I started the Mystic Nights, when I got back from Africa, that's what I did. I actually played Django tunes. In the Mystic Nights, was a, uh, it was a theater group? or was like it? Kind of a weird cabaret theater group, yeah. Multimedia. Crazy. Where was that at? That was all over San Francisco, Los Angeles, bouncing between the two. And did they have a, a headquarters, like a, a, a one place? Or? L.A., you know, my loft. I had an old loft in Venice. Oh, you did. We rehearsed there. Yeah, for like a nickel a month, basically. And then I then I got my first place in uh, back on the east side again. Yeah, rough area. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I remember it was like a big fucking loft with a parking lot and the duplex, and it was five thousand down down payment, which I borrowed from my parents. You know, yeah, and paid them back later. Right, but we rehearsed there for years. How many people in this ensemble? Well, it was up to 12, actually. Now, did your brother have anything to do with this? He started with us, and then he went off to make this movie, Forbidden Zone, and then I went off with The, uh, the Mystic Knights and kind of turned them into a more musical version of what we were. And so what, Everybody so, had to play three instruments, so we could, du- we could triple as a brass ensemble, a string ensemble, or a percussion ensemble. And this, what year was this? Oh, 72. Two through seventy-eight. Really? Yeah. So, like, who? Like, so you were a unique entity. Like, no one was really doing what you were doing. No, we were freaks. Yeah. Total freaks. And like, where did you fit into the music landscape? We didn't the fit time? into anything. <laughs> I didn't even listen to music in the seventies. I wouldn't listen to anything recorded after nineteen thirty-eight. So you were like a full-on uh, old-timey nerd. Yeah, yeah. I was in I, in my head. I, w- I lived a life that went between Harlem and Paris, 1931. Wow. And the other guys are like that, too? They got pulled into it. So you're only playing Django Reinhardt tunes and- Well, strange- Cab Calloway. Yeah, okay. I, my first writing of music was Duke Ellington. I loved Duke Ellington. Well, he's, I, I really want to dig into him more. Like there, There's like almost limitless genius to that guy. Yeah, huh? total genius. And- you listen to the arrangements. So transcribing Ellington arrangements was my first time actually writing music, was trying to learn how to transcribe an Ellington. So that's how you learn how to read music and write music? Mm-hmm. Listening and write, learning to write down the parts to Ellington. Oh, man. So you taught yourself that? Yeah. And, but I mean, Ellington stuff, even now, many years later, I look yeah. back and I go, no, still a total genius. 
you know, it's not like I thought so at the time. And in hindsight, I go, no, not really. No, he was a fucking genius, man. Right. So, like, even before you got involved with pop music, you... Way got, before I got involved with pop music. You were under, you were appreciating the sort of layers of composition. Like, there's, it seems yeah, to me that, I mean, like... I, I, was, I was listening to Ellington, Django, Stravinsky, and Prokofiev. Yeah. And so my compositions were, like, out of a weird Prokofiev-ish... Stravinsky-ish nuttiness mixed in with Cab Calloway. But that's how your brain worked. Yeah. What about Zappa? Did you ever engage with that? I mean, I, I knew Zappa stuff and I listened, but that, that was like a kind of progressive rock. And because it was rock, I wasn't oh, even into so, it. So when that was happening, even though the humor of it and the intention of it, well, I guess it wasn't quite similar to what you were doing then, but certainly his fuck you-ishness Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Later. I totally appreciated him yeah. and his attitude. And I remember his first album... Because that was still when I was listening to rock, the yeah. Mothers of Invention. Yes, I loved. It was one of my first albums. Oh, really? But then when I like did my brain shift, I got no rock and roll. Right. Nothing. It, because it was uh, it was uh, silly. No, not at all. Uh. I just like entered a, a portal. It's just like walking <laughs> through a portal. It's like okay, I'll, I'll live here for a while. And that's sort of a uh, an infinite portal. That one. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people never leave those portals. No, because like, it, well, I mean, I think it must have it must have informed your creativity all the way through it. Because there's no to to. It seems like that spectrum of stuff you were listening to can really encourage experimentation for almost ever, right? Well, that's true. I was also listening to a lot of modern percussion. I, I became obsessed with percussion, and there was a point where I thought I'd become a a musicologist or a percussionist. Um, I, I loved this guy named Harry Parch. Uh -huh. Harry Parch was like a almost of a hobo composer in the 50s and the 60s, and he built his own instruments. Huh. And we, in the Mystic Knights, we actually built our entire ensemble of percussion instruments ourselves. Out of what? Out of metal and wood. I used to grind metal and grind wood. I had did, a, did you guys live together? Was there? <laughs> no, but my partner, Leon Schneiderman, he was the same guy I went to Africa with. He was a brilliant builder. He uh -huh. built anything. And so I was really more like his assistant. Like I would design, like, I, here's what we want to do. We want to build this big bass, crazy bass marimba thing. We want to build this metal minor pans on a rack. But he would actually do it and I would help him. But yeah. He, he, was, he was really, that was his genius was like making constructions of things and putting it together. So were you guys doing like happenings? Was that sort of the context of the performance? No. Or were you recording? No. We, I mean, the first years was all on the streets. So my first three, four years Where of performance. Where on the streets? Anywhere. Like, we'd go to Here? Westwood. Yeah. Huh. Like, outside of a movie. we just, like, appear. 15 guys? About, at that point, probably about 10. Yeah. Like, drums. Like, yeah. Do drums and then put the drums down, pick up our horns, play this crazy show, pass the hat, and bail before the police came. Wow. And that was uh, that went on for that many years. Yeah, and then finally started moving into theaters and like little theaters, and and then you did know, you ever build up any momentum? A little bit. I mean, you know, we got popular enough to play like a month at the uh, um, the boarding house in San Francisco, which was like you know a cool, yeah. cool little theater. And we did the Alcazar. We did uh, the Aquarius Theater. Yeah. here we played for like a week. We do that kind of thing. And. What were you doing for a living? Waiting tables. Where? Great American Food and Beverage Company in Santa Monica. Uh-huh. Where I had to perform. I had to play trombone and sing and wait tables. You, so you had a little riff on the trombone you would do? Oh, man. It was awful. <laughs> it was so loud and crazy. And honestly, I was a busboy. Yeah. I wasn't even really a waiter. Yeah. I was only a waiter at the end. I wasn't good enough 
on the trombone I, or I, as I, a waiter? As a waiter. <laughs> okay. I was a shitty waiter. Me I mean, too. It's terrible. I tried to bust into like two other restaurants afterwards and like faked my way in and I didn't last a week. Yeah. I couldn't remember the orders. Yeah. Bring the wrong thing. I, like, I didn't order that. It's well, worst. But I, I, but, oh, help. Uh, yeah. It's the worst. <laughs> so when, what's the evolution? What's out of the, uh, the, the mystic, what's the whole name of the Mystic place? Knights yeah. of the Oingo Boingo. So, oh, so it was the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. So some of those I guys. I call it the Mystic Knights because it's so confusing because the band took the name Oingo Boingo. Right. But it's no connection to what the Mystic Knights were doing. So None? It, it's really fucking confusing. I mean, it seemed like, like. You must have learned a lot. It must have laid the groundwork for your musical imagination. Well, it. I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to do theater anymore at wow. all. So suddenly I heard ska out of England. Mm. And I said, I want to do that. I want to be a ska band. And I love the idea that all we need is amps, no sets, costumes, makeup, all this shit. Because we had movies, animations. It's like, I love the idea. So it's a full psychedelic experience in a way. But kind not of psychedelic. trippy, yeah. Yeah. And um, so I loved the idea of going to the other extreme. Start strip a band, it down. Strip it down. Yeah. All we need is amps, drums, go. Yeah. And uh, and I just wanted to be in a ska band all of a sudden. It's weird because like I listen to those first few the first couple Oingo Boingo records, and it's not. It doesn't sound essentially like ska to me. It was motivated by ska and punk. Right. You know, we weren't really a ska band, and we certainly weren't a punk band. Yeah. But we were driven by those impulses, and we, you know, we did. There were a number of ska songs. Yeah. Most of them didn't make it to record. Huh. And then the, what wasn't ska was just really fast. <laughs> yeah, it was fast in it, like, but it, it drew from like there's there's a momentum that kind of you know pounds through like a lot of your music you, you know an intensity to it it's called nervous energy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's called loud nervous energy loud nervous energy <laughs> with a you know really really low attention span and uh is yeah. that what do you, is that do you find did you have adhd i mean are you a guy that probably like, i never you got you know we it? didn't get diagnosed no, back I know. Then, yeah yeah but i'm sure that i did yeah yeah and then, like, but music focuses you yeah, somehow. Yeah, exactly. It's all, the only thing I could focus on was, like, if I was into a composition, if I was into a thing, I learned I could really, really stick with that. Be present for yeah, it. present for it. But I could never learn another language. Yeah. I could never learn to read properly, even right. though I could write my whole scores down when yeah. I started scoring. I tried doing lessons to, like improve my reading and I couldn't fucking do it. It's like I really began to feel and I still feel that yeah. I've got a brain like a kink. Yeah. You know, like some something in there that like has me always been off. But how's your like how can you sight read pretty well? Not at all. Music? No. No, shit. Like that's what I mean. Oh. <laughs> that's what I mean. I can oh. write it, but when I read it back, I have to read it slow cuz I learned to write without learning how to read. Right. So my reading was as fast as I can write. Yeah. So that would be the same as like teaching yourself to type without reading. And then when you learn to read, you're reading at the same speed you could type. Right. But so, but you can express yourself I immediately uh, through writing music if you hear it in your head. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I can write it. I learned early enough that I could write it all down if I yeah. take the time, freeze it, and write it. Yeah. But to read it in real time, yeah. fluently, that was like learning a language. And that's where I hit a block. Well, that's when you time. get the other guy to do it, right? To, where you're like, play this for me. Well, I mean, <laughs> I didn't have that ability back then. Uh, but, you know, I'd write it out, and then it would go straight to orchestra. Right, right, right. You know, when right. you're in a band, you don't write anything out. Right. 
You just jam? Yeah. You just, just get, get yeah, tighten you, it up, rehearse? Uh, oh, man. I did like seven years of writing yeah. with the Mystic Knights. Then I'm in the band, Oingo Boingo, yeah. and I said, oh, that was wasted. Yeah. All that was for nothing. Because I'm in a band. You bring in a guitar, you play the song, and the band picks it up, and you're playing it. But what was the scene then? I mean, it's like in order... Okay, you decided you didn't want to do theater, but you obviously made some choice to do pop music yeah. on a, in a way, right? You are right. like, you were gunning for hits, weren't you? No. I mean... Not really? I knew we'd never have a hit. Didn't you kind of, though? Well, we kind of... Weird Science was kind of a hit, but that was an inadvertent... But I remember, thing. like, I remember when I was a kid... Like, because uh, I'm I'm 57, but I had a friend that like would literally for months sing that. I think the first Oingo Boingo record, like almost in its entirety, uh, when he was just wandering around. <laughs> the one with the one with, I'm on the outside. I'm on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, is that, Is that the first album? That probably was the first album. Yeah. yeah. Wow, yeah. man, you really like. Yeah, he was in it. And it was like, it was one of those things like, you guys never, you don't know about Wingo Boingo? We're like, no. And he had the cassette and he kept putting it in, <laughs> in the car. Wow. Yeah. I pity you. No, it was great because it was, uh, at that time, you're like, I've never heard anything like this. Well, but what, I mean, hits, it wasn't. Yeah. You know, we, we developed a really big, beautiful following in the West Coast, but we were considered like the biggest cult band in the country because like you know we got to a point where we could sell 6,500 seats easily in yeah. Los Angeles yeah. and we could take that to San Francisco we can right. go as far as Salt Lake City yeah. uh, San Diego but people would still cross know. the Rockies and now we're playing like a 300 seat club really yeah so I guess that's what it, I think he probably was one of those guys because I grew up in New Mexico and I think he mm -hmm. probably visited somebody in LA right and they're like you don't know Oingo Boing that kind of thing yeah and yeah. brought it back oh yeah but look Salt Lake City was one of our best audiences so it, they're interesting you know the, yeah. the 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 people that sort of like uh, Mormons are a good audience if you're not dirty, and the people that are annoyed by Mormons are a great audience if you want to push the envelope. I just thought those kids needed to let some steam off because yeah. they were like some of the rowdiest audiences. Really? Yeah, they rivaled L.A. for sure. Well, like if that was like I'm trying to think, you were a part of the L.A. music scene at that point. Well, right? the L.A. music scene, fortunately, at that yeah. point, was really eclectic. Like, yeah. it, like we switched clubs every weekend with, yeah. with a group of bands. It would be like us, a group called Fear. Oh, yeah. X. Yeah. The Go-Go's. Yeah. Um, a group called Wall of Voodoo. Yeah. Los Lobos. Um, it was a really eclectic group. If you lined us all up, you would find very little in common with any of but us. But that was sort of what real punk was about, wasn't it? It was just about a lot of different original, like it was not, like the sound that punk rock gets identified with is not really what the original idea of punk was. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. When when I started a band, I you know, it's like punk, oh, I'm way too old, I'm 27. I'm an oh, old man, right, right. so like, I can't be in a punk band. But it was just people doing their own vision, like the Minutemen too. I, right, like, right, yeah, yeah. exactly. And- yeah, so I mean, a lot of boundaries were crossed, but the yeah. interesting thing about the LA scene is that there wasn't an LA scene. Right, it was like, just a lot of unique. Like artists. I would play a show at Madame Wong's West, and I would run in between our sets to, to uh, the Hong Kong Cafe to see X play. They were my favorite band yeah, ever. I listened to those first three X albums recently. They're amazing. They're great. I I always thought they were like like the best. They were the real deal. And and the thing is, I would see X and Las Lobos and these other bands, and I I so was envious of the fact that they knew who they were. Mm. And I never had a clue, and I still don't. Yeah. Like, there was an identity. And I, I envied that, that, like, the sense there was a, a center to it. 
Right. It was well, grounded those, in, in something real. Well, it's grounded. Though, well, those guys are grounded in a sort of American tradition, right? It's that rock, X was kind of a rock band and Los Lobos was, these, those are kind of fundamental Americana bands. Yeah, and the Go-Go's was a pure pop band. And, um, you know, they all had a center that kept them clearly what they were. And, Interesting. And I never had that. And, and, I, and, and I envied anybody who did. And you still feel like you don't. Oh, I, I know I don't. And my new album proves it. Yeah, but I mean, I listen to the new record and I listen to the old records. I mean, you definitely, nobody sounds like you, but I understand what you're saying. But it seems to me that coming out of what you came out of with the interests that you had, you seem to honor most of those interests. And those are not as simple as those other bands. Maybe, but I still, I wanted to be in a different band every two years. And you can't be in a band wanting to be in a different band every two years. It's like every two years, I wanted to wake up and do a whole different kind of band. Yeah. And that made it very frustrating for me. Uh-huh. And I, what I didn't understand is that I was going to become a film composer and those same impulses would work to my advantage. Because Not a, being limited. Well, no, just loving extremes. Yeah. Having oh. to switch it up, switch it up, right, switch right, it up. Right, right, because right. you go from ridiculous to heavy to intense, yeah. to small and personal. and You as didn't long need as, a center. You didn't need a center. As long <laughs> yeah. as I could keep mixing it up, I was happy. If, right. I, if I did two things in a row that they were the same, I was miserable. But being on the road was impossible. I'd have to perform the same songs every night would make me insane. Really? Yeah. I mean, I could never have been on Broadway. <laughs> it's like when you hear about you know, bands touring for all year oh, long yeah. or playing the hits. decades yeah. or people, somebody being on Broadway doing eight shows a week. Six weeks on the road, I was going insane. What, what was it? The repetition? Yeah. Hmm. It just made me insane. Did it make you feel like you were uh, 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 just uh, uh, almost like a recording machine? Or I, or like, what was it? I, I don't know. I, I just, I was like, I don't want to do this song anymore. I don't want to do this song anymore. And Because um, it was dead to you? It was more than two years old. So like when you were doing the mystic theater business... It was constantly yeah. evolving and improvising. Con- Did yeah. you improv that, see, a lot? Because it was a theater group, you can switch it up and change it and switch and it up. surprising things happened. Yeah. And also, we didn't do that much performing. So we'd do like a month on and then there'd be four months off and okay. then like two weeks on. And then so it's not like so, we're playing every night. Well, that's interesting because so ultimately your destiny, thank God it worked out because you weren't cut out for the road. No, I was not cut out for the road. You know, it's like bands who stay together and tour for decades. I admire it, but I'm just not wired for that. Mm. And um, I'm always at war. Say, so here's the problem. Mm-hmm. And you can hear it on the new record. And you could probably, if you listen to early Ongo Boingo and later Ongo Boingo, you mm-hmm. can hear the conflict. There's two writers that don't like each other. In one, you. One is heavy. And the other is really intense and ridiculous. Right. With a sense of kind of craziness. And they have no respect for each other. And they're always trying to get the front seat. That's within you. That's right. And when I started writing Big Mess, every song came out in pairs. Just like one, the other, one, the other. So the heavy part then, well, I mean, that, but that's the counterbalance. One is the sense of humor. The other is uh, the sort of uh, dark dread. Yeah, that fills me, you know, and and also when I'm writing orchestra and and scores, you know, it's like I love writing heavy, dark music, (laughs) but I also loved writing Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice, and I love them both. 
but they they don't like each other. Well, how did it feel though on Big Mess to to? I mean, I, I imagine because I've talked to a couple. I, I talked to Nancy Wilson a couple weeks ago from mm-hmm. Heart, and this is a woman you know who's been in that rock band forever. Yeah. Never done a solo record, but because she was locked down, and they figured out the technology, you know, she did her first solo album. Wow. So. So you're sitting at home. I mean, you haven't done like an Oingo Boingo record or forever or a record like this in how many years? Well, 95 was my last record with Oingo Boingo. And I only did one solo record back in the 80s. Right. So this is like a monumental achievement in a way. Well, I don't know. I didn't look at it like that. No, but, but I mean, you did it. The thing is, I had set 2020 aside. Yeah. No films. I was going to do concerts. Before the pandemic? Yeah. You mean you were going to do your orchestral uh, you were going to conduct also i i had orchestra shows all over the world um four different shows i mean i have a show that travels around called elfman burton does yeah. all these Elf, uh, tim all burton, the tim burton music. yeah then nightmare before christmas starts going as a, a live thing do you then, do a live accompaniment to the film uh, the whole show live with orchestra oh that's great and uh, they just announced that yesterday we're doing it this halloween because people love off they and, love that movie but also i had my violin concerto premiering in uh in england and germany that i wrote five years ago four years ago i had a new work that i'd written uh, for the national youth orchestra of great britain premiering at the proms in august i had a concerto What's that one <laughs> I don't know what it is. I mean, because it didn't happen. So, you know, hopefully in another year. And and two concertos, one a cello concerto and a concerto for a percussion. So I was like really in that mindset. But I also had Coachella. And that got me into like, I'm going to come back out there and do this crazy fucking show in Coachella. What was the Coachella show? Half film music and half I was revamping and rewiring some Oingo Boingo stuff. Yeah. And because I was looking for... I'm so angry in 2020. I'm so frustrated and so angry with the world and sure. America yeah. that I was looking for what's relevant now. And I found that I was singing constantly about dystopia. So it wasn't hard to pull stuff and like, sure. go, right, right. all right, that works, that right, works, right, that works. Right. And I had this band together and we were rehearsing Yeah. and we were starting to sound good and I was getting excited. Yeah. So my mind was like back into, I'm going out on stage and I'm going to rip the fucking thing up and yeah. I'm going to really, and then it all disappears. Oh, yeah. And so I'm sitting up in my little place north of Los Angeles. I have a second home uh-huh. that I've had for 25 years. So I've never spent more than a week in. Yeah. My wife, myself, my son, my dog yeah. head up there. To quarantine. That I've lived there for a year now. How was it? Beautiful. Mm. Made that our, we're making that our primary home now. I know. I, I think I actually somehow on a news feed somewhere saw you sold your house here. Yeah. Yeah. Sold it. Looked and like a pretty house. Beautiful. Yeah. But decided to make that the center. And Out uh, in the woods or what? It's not in the woods, but it's in a beautiful mm. area, wild oh, area. Oh, cool. And uh, I we still had that thing in my head. Yeah. And so I started to write this orchestral piece. Yeah. But it's just not happening because mm. I'm not feeling I knew that the proms was not going to happen in August even though they hadn't canceled. We all knew there was going to be no fucking concerts. Right. So I lost the the deadline along with the deadline went the impetus and I said, "You know what? I got this one new song I was going to do in Coachella called Sorry." Yeah. And um I'll write a couple songs. And I have a beautiful studio in L.A. Yeah. Up there, all I had was one guitar, one mic, yeah. and my computer. <laughs> right. And I didn't even have a pair of headphones that worked. Yeah. I don't know what was wrong with them. <laughs> right. And I just started in. And then Pandora's box, I couldn't shut the fucking thing up. Wow. That's interesting because, like, so you were, you were in an orchestral s- state of mind, 
But you had a lot to say. I had a lot to say, and I still had the electric guitar fresh in my fingers. Yeah, yeah. And so that made it a guitar-centric album that I was writing. Otherwise, it could have been electronic. It could have been anything. Yeah. But I, in my head, I was going on stage with a guitar. Yeah. And so I just pulled out my guitar. And before you laid out all those tracks? Yeah. Like, all you had was Sorry? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, there's a lot of stuff in this record that's kind of... Mostly, most all of it is timely because you knocked it out during this dark period. Yeah, I was, I had so much venom in me when I started opening my mouth to sing and putting lyrics. It was like, and I don't even know where all this is coming from, but it was like we were in an America that I could not have imagined except in a bad dystopian American short story or novel. Right. That you go, oh boy, like, you're glad, glad that's not reality. Right. And that's where we were heading. Yeah. And uh, and it's not over. No. Not by a long fucking shot. No, the fight is on. The fight is on. And all we get is a reprieve. Right. So, uh, but in 2020, I mean, I was the height of frustration. And I was thinking- Fear? The, fear, definitely. Yeah. You know, my wife and I were just going, do we move I know, to I, yeah. Canada or England or New Zealand or Australia or an English-speaking country? Or do we- Try to bubble up in California. Yeah. Think of this as a country outside of America. Yeah. You know, how do we play this? It's like America's going insane. Yes. Um, this is Idi Amin. This is yeah. like, like a, a. When does it tip into blood in the streets? When does it tip into blood in the streets? And there's that point where I understood what happened in 1929 in Germany because Idi Amin took power. Yeah. Hitler didn't. He was elected. Yeah. And I'm not comparing Trump to Hitler right because I've done this once and gotten myself in deep shit uh-huh. what I'm comparing is when a civilized democracy right hands over the democracy to a uh, kind of a populist wild guy yeah who's tapping into like an anger right you know and with Hitler it was a lie. It was the anger of losing World War One. Yeah. They were angry about that. And he sold the lie that they didn't really lose it. Hmm. They didn't lose World War One. It was given away. They were actually winning the war. Hmm. It's just where we are right now with Trump and the election. Right. I didn't lose it. I won by a landslide. Yeah. It was taken away. And then people, yeah, and they get angry about that. And before you know it, you hand the world to an authoritarian government. Now, clearly... Trump is not Hitler. Right. But that civilization, my ancestors who were living in Germany at the time, yeah. didn't believe that's not going to happen here. We're, they're too logical. They're too, right. they're too sane. Yeah. They can't hand it over. Right. And they did. You lost people in the Holocaust? Of course. Yeah. Well, my, my family, they were out, most of them, before uh, World War Two. Well, a lot of mine were, but not, you know, yeah. of course, extended family. Sure, sure. Yeah, we yeah. all lost people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but the point is, is that it's handing it over. Yeah. And seeing the insanity and yeah. going, it'll level out. It'll right. level out. No, it doesn't. Hmm. It's like, this is just crazy. Right. And, and that's what drove this. Yeah. Yeah. It was like seeing, like, we're, we're going crazy. Yeah. We're talking crazy conspiracies. Yeah. I mean, you got QAnon out there talking crazy shit this is like flat earth kind no, of i shit. know it's all happening yeah 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 it's amazing how uh how fragile the human brain is in terms of like i found that what what surprised me more than anything else both with people i thought were intelligent and and also with people who were frighteningly stupid is just how truly shallow 
a lot of people's intellect is and principles about anything or their ability to to have some sort of barometer for uh, truth. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, look, my anger wasn't directed at Trump. Trump, every culture has got a million sociopath, crazy, you know, yeah. populists waiting to like step in and sure. hand them the power. Sure, I'll take it. Yeah. It's the, it's the Republican Party that enabled him. And continues to. And continues to. That's... Craven fucking opportunists that, and that, That's the part that gets me. Because it, it should be he's a fringe... Yeah. He's like a fringe character nah. on a on a world on a stage of characters, and he's like one of the fringe. No, it, I guess I, I mean, should we have been surprised that none of them had any character or backbone? I was I, I, I was surprised. I didn't think they'd go that far as to like the. I, I just didn't think it could happen. And which song on here speaks to like in your mind is is like the the um, the one that really covers. Most of all, yeah, I would probably fear. say sorry yeah. and, and serious ground. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like I felt those boots coming. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what it feels like to feel like the boots of like the gang. Yeah. And, you know, I've always had this fear of of gangs, yeah. of mobs. Yeah. Uh, I remember being in England once and I was I was lost. I was trying to get out of one area into another and it was like near a soccer stadium, I guess. Yeah. And suddenly I hear this sound. Right. And it was like a kind of a big mob coming from a game. And I just hid out of the way and I watched them march by. Yeah. And I was fucking scared. Now, they weren't out to get me. Yeah. And I didn't have any reason to be, but the fact that it was a fired up mob. Yes. Maybe it's the Jew in me. Yeah. It's like, yeah. get out of the fucking way. Yeah. These are, you know, yeah. they're, this is the Gestapo. This right. is the mob. Yes. This is the uncontrollable mob. Yes. It's like where there's a group of fired up. Yeah. I was freaked out. I mean, when he was elected, the woman I was dating at the time, you know, I was like, we're, it's, I got to get my passport, make sure I, my papers are in order so I can get the fuck out of here because they're going to come for us. And, and she was like, I think Jews are like my third or fourth down on the list. <laughs> <laughs> I think this, they got to get through a few other ones. Some brown people first. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. And I'm like, well, that's cold comfort, but I understand what you're saying. No. And, you know, and that's the other similarity to us in like Germany 29 is like focus your anger towards a minority. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's standard practice. Standard practice. Yeah. And in fact, that was Idi Amin's thing. He fired up his base with get rid of the Indians, the Sikhs, because a lot of the businesses were run by Sikhs, run really well by a long embedded Sikh population that had been there for generations. Yeah. And he was saying, we're going to get kick all the Sikhs out. And people that I talked with in Uganda were going, they could never do that. You know, the Sikhs, like they're, they're Dug they in. keep the economy yeah, right. rolling. They're actually really good at what they do. They're not stealing land from Ugandans. That's they're just good That's business people. And he did. The year I got home, I remember I'm home, he says, all the Sikhs expelled. Their businesses taken away and nationalized. And that was the beginning of the economy going into this massive nose. Well, that's what's scary just now about how all these corporations stood up against these new voting legislations in these Republican states. And they just said, fuck you. We're going to do it anyways. Yeah, that's right. So, but getting back to the music, it's interesting to me that that the, the, the sort of scope that you, you can sort of summon orchestrally was not enough to relieve your dread and fear. 
that you had to put voice to it. I had to put voice to it. Yeah. And um, I had to get that out of my system. And also, I just had a lot of stored up. I mean, it was also part of it was pandemic. It was like quarantine. Yeah. I just had a lot of frustrated, pent up energy. Because you're used to, to running around and performing and scoring. and Yeah, just, I don't know. I busy. just wasn't used to like just being sitting up, yeah. you know, north in my yeah. little yeah. little paradise. No, it's a lot. Yeah, you know, as sweet as it is, it's like okay, two weeks. Well, what do you reckon with that? I mean, you know, for a guy that doesn't feel like you have a center or or a uh, a, a, a particular identity, did you did you come upon one? No, I mean, I, I, it was interesting the sources that were coming to me because yeah. I found a lot of David Bowie. I hear that in the record. Yeah, I didn't grow up on David Bowie, but I discovered him later. Well, it's like Berlin Bowie. Well, Scary Monster. You know, it's like when I pick up a guitar, I'm thinking of like Adrian Ballou, Scary Monster, period. It's like, oh, that's part of my subconscious now. Oh, really? So there's always going to be like- No Fripp, Ballou. Well, no, Fripp too. But but, but that particular, that album, I realize I know every song on it. It stuck with me. When I came back to popular music in the the 80s, um, that was the first Bowie album I heard. I'd never heard anything. I never even knew what Ziggy Stardust was. I remember when Scary Monsters comes out, uh, came out, how exciting it was because he'd been away for a while. Okay, right? I didn't know that. See, for me, that was just like that was what was there when I came out of hibernation. Yeah, is Baloo all over that record? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. And And so um, that hit me. And you and you have that a similar kind of vocal effect sometimes. Well, I I wish. I mean, you know, I in my dreams. No, but you have the depth of it, I think, sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is I had to find a voice for this record Mm. because when it comes to singing, it's use it or lose it, baby. Yeah. And I hadn't been using it for twenty five years. Yeah. I remember going to Vegas, Tim Burton said, Oh, you gotta go to the Tom Jones show in Las Vegas. I just interviewed him. Really? Yeah. And I and I did. I I went out to Tim's at Yeah. Yeah. And he must have been my age now or maybe older. Yeah. And he was amazing. Yeah. He he would hit high notes and then hold it longer than he needed to. Oh, yeah. And look at the audience. And it was like, fuck you. I, he, I can hold this fucker forever. Yeah. He's still like that. That's, that's <laughs> what drives him is yeah. that he can still do it. He, he was amazing. Now, I hadn't sung. So, like, when I got in there for rehearsals mm. for Coachella, it's like, oh, man, Oingo Boingo songs were already at the top of my range. Right. It's like, I can't hit these high notes. So, I'm sitting there with the album. It's like, yeah. what is my range? What's my instrument? Yeah. And it was a song called True. Yeah. And I found, like, I couldn't do this song 25 years ago. Interesting. And I go, I'm liking this now because... I think it's like, you know, if trumpet was your thing and then you yeah. put it away for a long time, you bring it out and you go, okay, I can't hit high C, right. but I can hit this middle tone nastier than I could then. Oh, so you're aware of that. And yeah. yeah. And it was like, I was finding those tones and I was yeah. going, I always did want a rougher voice back then and I was frustrated that I didn't have it. Oh, now you got I, it. Yeah. You I got it. it. I got it. I earned it. Yeah. So I can't go as high, but I, I found I could do stuff. I could also sing with more open then I think I was trying harder then. Like right. all of my vocals on Big Mess were demos in my own room. I didn't recut a thing. Hmm. We went to, fin- to do the album and I didn't care. Yeah. I said, I, I don't care. I don't care the fuck what anybody thinks of my vocals. If I sound shitty, I sound shitty. The fuck do I care? But uh, yeah. And also like there, I, I imagine when you were younger, there was an urgency 
Yeah, and that, and, and, I, and I'd go in the studio and try to top it, do another take, right, right. do another take. Yeah. This time is not no other takes. Yeah, just lay it down. Hmm. Okay, it's a little out of tune here. Okay, I'm good with that. Yeah, don't fix it. Yeah, and you know where I learned that Nightmare Before Christmas, quarter century ago. Oh, really? Tim uh, and I went in the studio when I first wrote the songs. There were ten songs. Yeah, and I had a female singer do Sally's song. Now I had nine songs to record. I right. did all the parts yeah. one night with Tim as the producer. Yeah. And did these and now a year later we're yeah. in the studio doing it for real. Yeah. And I'd be singing and singing and singing and Tim would go, Can you put on that original demo? I'd put it really? on he goes, I hate to say it, but I wow. kinda like this verse or that verse better. And he was right. Yeah. And I realized, you know what? There's something to that first take. Sure. Yeah. That's special. And half of Not those demos- Not conscious yet. No. And half of the demos from Nightmare made it into the final movie. So this time, I, w- I was smart. I was saying, don't discount any first vocals that you do. Yeah, and you got to hold yourself to that, especially if you you know, you know second guess, you're insecure, you're a perfectionist. I mean, it's almost like this weird discipline. Yeah. It's like you lay it down, you're like, don't take it, don't- don't fuck it up. Don't fuck it up. And and it's the discipline to not be a perfectionist. Yeah, right. You know? That's hard for you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <I get. laughs> it is. So that was a good experience. It was cathartic. That's I was I was being open. Yeah. Also, I was writing first person, mm. which I rarely did in Oingo Boingo. Wow. I, so it's like a, a full departure. It was. Like a rediscovery. You of, know, uh, in the beginning in Oingo Boingo, almost yeah. everything was third person. Yeah. Characters. Characters. Yeah. You know, like people ask me now, say, man, aren't you ashamed you wrote a song, I Love Little Girls? I go, no. <laughs> I was like, sing- I was Jeffrey Epstein right. singing about little girls. Right, right. Um, and, you know, middle class socialist brat. I mean, are you really down on? I said, no, I was a middle class socialist brat. That's me. Yeah. But I'm I'm trying to irritate everybody. <laughs> well, that's interesting now that, you know, people in this world, in this new sort of culture of first person authenticity own what you say kind of shit they that they don't have the sophistication to understand that there are characters in these songs oh absolutely it's interesting they were almost all characters yeah like i was just like shooting at the right and the left yeah boom 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 it's like get everybody mad and this in this one you do uh something similar but it's from your own heart it's from my own heart and Mm. and i'm singing for the first time in in ages how i felt yeah and that's I, great. You know, I, I guess that maybe that's just getting older and not caring. Because, you know, third person is also protection. Sure. It's yeah. like a bit of armor. Yeah, it's character. Yeah, you get, yeah, and also being in a band is a bit of protection. Yeah, you're keeping yourself protected. Well, it's, it's interesting that, like, that it's good that you've had the success that you've had and that, you know, you are musically confident enough to allow yourself to do this, to, to you know, that you, and also that we happen to you know, have a aspiring fascist and a pandemic. That, <laughs> that doesn't hurt. It really doesn't hurt. Cause the album wouldn't have happened. No, not in a million years. Yeah. It's you just, would have been doing like huge movie I, things and, and orchestras. And orchestras. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. But like how, when, like, but when did you know, like I, did you know that Oingo Boingo was like that that couldn't last? Was there any part of moving? Because you were doing soundtracks. You know, yeah, in, the 10 years of overlap. That's a lot. Yeah. But so how how did the first like soundtrack happen? And It was Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It was. That it was, was the first big Tim one? Tim Burton came to me. How did he know you? He knew me through Oingo Boingo. He did. Paul Rubens 
that's Pee-wee. Yeah. Knew me through Forbidden Zone that I did for my brother in the 70s. Okay, my brother did this crazy movie, Forbidden Zone, and Paul was a fan. So Paul and Tim get together, and they knew me through two different worlds. Did Paul know your brother? No. Mm. But Paul he, knew, he, he, knew he made a re- note he knew, in knew his head. Movie. Yeah. He said, whoever did Forbidden Zone, <laughs> yeah. I want that guy. And Tim yeah. used to go see Oingo Boingo. Yeah. So when I met Tim, I thought they wanted a song. Right. And Tim was like, no, I'm looking for a score. And I'm like, why me? <laughs> like, a real score? Yeah. And I almost didn't take the job. Huh. Because we talked. I went home and I did a demo. I sent him a cassette tape. And that's the main titles to Pee Wee. But- you know, I got the job and I almost was said no. I said, I don't want to fuck up your movie. I liked him. I didn't want to fuck up his movie. But like, but what he must have known, like he must have heard the whole history of what you think is interesting musically in Oingo Boingo. I don't know what he heard. Because but he, like, he took a big chance. That's all I could say. But it's But who could have handled something that, you know, like it's interesting because it was so defining of of like a lot of the stuff you're going to do from from then on. Because the range of it, like, it was totally in your wheelhouse pre-Wongo Boingo, it seems, that Pee Wee was. I don't know. I'd never tried it before. The scoring, but I mean, the kind of music, there was a calliope element. No, no, that's true. I listened listened to film music. Mm -hmm. I was a film music fan. You were. From when I was about 12. What was compelling about it, really? Oh, well, you know, first off, I went to the movie theater every weekend of my life. Yeah. My church was the Baldwin Hills movie theater. Yeah. Horror films. Right. Oh, and that's very so, specific. So. Yeah, and science fiction. And I grew up. Interesting. I remember the film. It was yeah. The Day the Earth Stood Still. Right. Bernard Herrmann. Yeah. And it was like, wow, somebody wrote this. There, there was a name and music, and I, I understood that the music didn't just happen. Somebody did it. But it's also interesting that those two forms, like horror and science fiction, the music is essential in creating. I mean, it's always essential in creating a mood, granted, but it almost plays a character. Yeah. In both of those genres. Oh, totally. Right. And um, and then I went on to like all these f- movies I grew up as a kid. Uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, right. Jason and the Argonauts, Journey to the Center of the Earth. So every time I saw Ray Harryhausen and Bernard Herrmann's names, I go, that's it. That's the movie. I'm, that's going to be my favorite movie of the year. Harryhausen and Herman. Wow. Because it was interesting. I was listening. I don't know why I'm using the word interesting so much. I don't usually. But I... But, because I was listening to some of the scores that you did, and when you listen to them without the movie, you're like, how did the movie even exist next to this? <laughs> it's like bigger than the movie. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, Do you know no, what I mean? I it's guess, like, yeah. I no, mean, but I mean, it's good because you don't notice in that way in context. But on its own, you're like, oh my God, this is huge. I, I never thought of it that way. Like It's like, it's all, it, it almost, it's sort of like, I see your movie and I will <laughs> trump, I will double that, you know? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I was just doing the best I could for the oh, movie. That's great, man. I was, but, so um, Pee Wee's was it. That Pee Wee's was, was it. That the opened the door. and fire. Yeah. And it was the right place at the right time. Mm. Any successful composer has a lucky break. And that was Pee Wee because- But you didn't see yourself as a composer yet, I did didn't, you? But the, something about that moment in time with film and comedy. Yeah. Nobody knew what to do with comedy. Right. Pee Wee came out and instantly- I was offered every quirky comedy made in Hollywood. Wow. It's like, get the guy who did Pee Wee, get the guy who did Pee Wee, get the guy who did And Pee-wee. that's how you did back, that's how Back to School happened? Yeah, exactly. And that's a totally different, more traditional thing. Yeah. And then, you know, in between each of Tim's films, yeah. I did four. Yeah. So it was Pee Wee was one. Yeah. Beetlejuice was five. Batman was 10. 
didn't quite make it to 15. Edward Scissorhands was 14. And Tim would go, how are you doing four films between each of my films? And I said, Tim, I have to. I have to learn how to do this. I'm learning how to score. So you just took opportunities that you could deal with. Anything. To learn how to do it. Exactly. Well, kind of interesting because I was listening to... Um to Midnight Run, it was almost like, where'd this come from? This is like a Ry Cooter soundtrack. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, it, like kids, if you listen to like the album that you put out of the soundtracks, uh, music for a darkened theater or whatever, like the, the 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 diversity of sound, and then all of a sudden Midnight Run happens, and and I I had forgotten how much I remembered that music from that movie, and I wouldn't associate it with you. In, in well, normally. that was always my greatest joy, and yeah. still is. Yeah. When there's end credits. And somebody sees my name and go, I didn't know Danny did that score. And then I, that's for me is the big, yes. Really? Oh, absolutely. Why? Because that's my goal. That's to, my, to that's not my be pleasure. Pigeonholed. Yeah. To do something that's surprising. Well, I guess it must be difficult because you've inspired so many different sounds. Like you must be in competition with yourself being channeled through other people. Well, do you know what I mean? It is weird, and uh, I come back later, and it's like, all right, there's other people who do Beetlejuice better than me, right? And I'm now doing a movie that's kind of like somebody else doing Beetlejuice back at <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, and yeah. I even I was asked once by director, "Can you make it more Elfman?" Right. And I said, honestly, <laughs> I don't know if I can because there's for this particular version of Elfman there's probably four or five other guys who do it better than me now <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm as Elfmanish as I can get at this moment and it wasn't quite enough what do they usually use as a reference for that batman probably no i mean in this particular thing it was uh, it, you know it was a comedy uh, i don't know maybe it was beetlejuice maybe it was mm. well, I don't know it was it interesting was. because like even with scrooge that like i don't know how you sort of tackle it but like it, the and i don't know that i i think i'm just learning in the last few days just from listening to some of your stuff about how it works but there in scrooge you clearly were like you integrated some Christmas spirit in there that there were well, you, you. Yeah, that's the job. Yeah. Well, I know, but like the fa, the fa la 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 part, the la 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 la. It just and it gets sort of foreboding because it, it's easy to turn Christmas into foreboding for me. <laughs> Christmas was the most depressing time of the year yeah. every year for me. As a Jew or just in general? Well, as a Jew with no Jewish friends, right? You know, okay, it yeah. was terrible, terrible time. Yeah, I mean, I for years afterwards. I'd hear the beginning of Christmas music in a store, yeah. and it was like dark clouds started oh, rolling into yeah, my yeah, head because yeah. I was lonely. Mm. And I pictured all my friends holding hands, singing Christmas carols around the tree with their families, and I was just sitting with my very dull, secular family, uh-huh. not celebrating anything. Yeah, nothing. I was just waiting for the fucking season to be over so I can get back to business as usual. So the music friends. was horrible, menacing. Yeah, it was. And it wasn't until I had kids yeah. that I was like, I, I embraced Christmas through them. Because they're so enthusiastic about it. I say, okay, this is cool. You know, like they're so excited. So you weren't brought up with any religion, really? No. Well, that's good that you learned how to appreciate through the kids. Oh, yeah, because that's what it's all about. You know, it's like, I mean, let's face it. The Jews didn't get it right with Hanukkah competing with Christmas. (laughs) The the anticipation Uh of going to sleep and all your presents will be under the tree. Santa brings them in the middle of the night. That's great shit. This sounds like personally, it almost sounds like, uh, like, um, you know, the the sort of backstory to... uh, 
the the Halloween what's the nightmare before Christmas right that that it, it seems to kind of coincide with your own personal experience yeah yeah <laughs> I mean I totally look when I wrote the songs for Nightmare Before Christmas yeah. I related to Jack so much right Jack I felt like Jack cause yeah not so much about Christmas it was about Oingo Boingo mm. like. When you're in a band, when you're the lead singer in a band, mm-hmm. that's your kingdom. That's your world. You're the king. Yeah. And I wanted out uh, for like six, seven years, and I didn't know how to get out. Six out of the ten. Out of I, we were together almost seventeen years. My God. And but you still work with the uh, Steve Bartek. Yeah, forever, right? Yeah, yeah. My guitarist. And um, but the point is, is yeah. I wanted out, but I didn't know how. Yeah. And I related to Jack because he was like, he's in this world. They love him in this world, but he wants something else and he wants out and he doesn't know how to do it. Mm. So when I'm writing those songs for Jack, I was writing for myself. Yeah, yeah. That was me. So that was a that was a personal record. That was a personal record for me. It totally was. I related to Jack. And how how do you come up with something like the like? I mean, how does it work for you? What's your like? How do you come up with the Batman theme? Oh. That <laughs> that hit me at the worst possible time. Um, Tim flew me out to England, and I w- was on the Batman set, yeah. walking around, you know, kind of getting the vibe. And they right. paid me some footage. Yeah. And on the plane, on the way home, the yeah. thing fucking hits me. And it's like, what do I do? I'm on a 747. Uh, how do I do this? I'm going to forget this all. I'm going to land, and they're going to play some fucking... Beatles song or something, and I'm going to forget everything. Yeah, a big eraser. Yeah. So, I start with my little tape recorder. Yeah. That I never went anywhere without. Yeah. I start running in the bathroom. Yeah, and like going. A little bit. I go back to my seat. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Ten minutes later, back in the bathroom. And I think back in my seat. The ten minutes back in the bathroom because I couldn't do this next to the guy next to me. Yeah, yeah. And who thinks you're doing blow? Well, all the. Now I'm, I open the door and the flight attendants are there. Sir, can we help you? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you sure? You sick? No, I'm not sick. Okay. Can we get you anything? No, no. I'm great. I'm great. Yeah. Ten minutes later, I'm back in the bathroom. Open the door. Now there's three flight attendants. Right. Sir, are you okay? And they're going. They're probably going. What the fuck is he doing so frequently? You can't do that much blow. Right. right. You can't shoot up that often. What is he doing in there? Yeah. yeah. And um, I was like piece by piece working out the Batman score in my head and doing it all with like kind of complex audio notes that I knew how to do. Yeah. Where I could like, stack a chord and kind of create a harmony. Because I, I couldn't grab a napkin. Right. I could only write music if I have a keyboard. Right. Now, of course, I have a little keyboard, even my phone. Right. You know, I have to have some notes in front of me to write. Uh-huh. I can't just write out of my head. Oh, to get it started. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, to right. get all the chords and yeah, get yeah, the progression. Yeah. So I needed to do notes. And it was all done. In the bathroom of a 747, which is loud, by the way. The 747s, sure. there was a roaring sound. I get home, and sure enough, we land, and they play like, yesterday, yeah, 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 all yeah. my troubles and Batman's gone. <laughs> <laughs> it is like history, like yeah. lost this song. Yeah. And um, I run home, and I, I turn on my tape recorder, and I hear, and your like, sound and a little bit. Oh, you heard it. <laughs> it's like, at first I was like, oh no, it's gone. <laughs> then it came back. And I said, ah, that, 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 that's it, that's it, that's it. And I, I quickly wrote it all down. That's amazing. So it's all, so you can hear all the different layers in your head. Yeah. And um, I knew enough to, 
always have a tape recorder because the car, <laughs> so many of my ideas I get when I'm driving. Yeah. You know, look, L.A., right. we, we drive. Right. And there's something about getting in the car and driving. Suddenly, there's the bridge. There's the chorus. There's the part of the melody that I couldn't work out. And it's like, you know, I always had a Sony tape recorder with me 24-7. Well, the one thing I noticed listening just to, like, the way these things begin is that so, so over time, you realize that structurally, musically, you're like, because what, what I heard was like, we, you're entering this world now. Right. That there's something about the lead in to the first bit of music in a film that really sets the stage before almost anything else. Yeah, yeah. And I, you're I, conscious I, of that. I dig that. Oh, yeah. I, I love it when there's a title piece and I can set the tone yeah. right up at the top. Yeah. Because you know? some, some movies, it really makes a difference. Like, for example, Beetlejuice. Yeah. The audience didn't know what it was. Right. And they tried previewing it because it takes 45 minutes for Michael Keaton, to, for Beetlejuice to enter the picture. Right. So it was really important. I understood right at the top that I have to say in the first minute and a half, what's going to happen in 40 minutes? Like, say, be patient. This right. is coming. Right, right, right. And the same thing when I was doing uh, To Die For for Gus Van Sant. People seem to be not sure, is this a dark comedy or is this really a you know, right. serious. Yeah. And I had to say right in the beginning, no, 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 dark comedy. Right. It's okay. You can right. chuckle at this. Now, do you make these decisions or does this something that you do with the director? Well, no, no. Everything's with the director. Right. Of course. I mean, I, I, I feel it and I explain it like that. And Tim was like, you know, Tim was always like, sure, just go with it. You know? Yeah. And Gus was even like, Man, you're the composer. Really? Yeah. It's interesting to me that directors, you know, generally hire people they know do can do the job the, the way they want them to do it without them having to tell them to do it. Well, that doesn't keep directors from telling you how to do it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> frequently. But in these cases, we were in the same page because yeah. otherwise, you know, you can't sell an idea to a director if they don't agree. Or Have you ever just it. been like, you know, fuck it. I can't do this. This job. Who do I fuck to get off this film? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like what did I do? Yeah. Yeah, I've I've had a couple of those moments of like, oh my god, this is like and and look, I'm a masochist. Any successful composer you meet is a masochist mm. because the pain level on a big film with a neurotic director that's getting squeezed themselves. And you got to understand, every director starts out really confident. By the end, when we come on, mm. they're being torn apart. They're being previewed. The studio, everybody's coming at them. So you got to feel for them. They're in, in a battle. Right. And your job is to support your general, to, to, to be support in that battle. Right. You're like, okay, I'll be your lieutenant. I'm right there for you. Yeah. But sometimes it's rough. Yeah. And occasionally it's so rough that it's like, oh, my God, get me out of here. You know, usually you navigate through. I've only left a few times where it was like, just, this is going to be, I'm just going to take a fucking gun to my head yeah. before this movie's over. Right. And my pain tolerance on a film is high. You love to work, though. Yeah. <laughs> you must. You know, like, I've always, I've had this argument with my wife, you know, saying, you're a workaholic. No, I'm not a workaholic. I just have a lot of shit I got to get done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's different. Why does she want you to work less? Yeah. You know, she's yeah. like, come on, take a break. No, I can't. I got this and fun. I got this thing. I got yeah. this commission and I got to do these and I'm writing a script and I'm doing these songs for this show. And uh, it's just 
too many things that I want to do. Well, what's I'm, the most satisfying thing that you do? Oh, man. I mean, in terms of like, as a musician at this point, is it these, uh, do you like playing? Like, because it seems like between, like, between Night, Nightmare Before Christmas, the Batman movies, Pee Wee, and the Simpsons theme, I mean, you've had a profound influence on the subconscious of, of a generation of, <laughs> of people a little younger than me. Like right, so you've had this um, uh, amazing impact culturally. I mean, the Simpson theme in in and of itself is is probably played thousands of times of day a day somewhere in the world every day. And I thought nobody would see that show. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> it was so weird when I saw it. It's like I'm doing this just for fun. Yeah, because no one's going to see this thing. But I mean, I have to imagine that 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 thing alone has generated a good chunk of income for you. Well, yeah. I mean, at first I was shocked because it's Fox. Yeah. And I remember there was a point when I had like two animated shows on the network. I yeah. Had, like a Beetlejuice cartoon and a Batman cartoon and The Simpsons. Yeah. And like each of those cartoons would play, I'd get like seven hundred dollars, and like The Simpsons would play, I'd get eleven dollars and fifty cents. And I called my agent. I go, "What the fuck?" And he says, "Oh, you know, Fox has a sweetheart deal. They're not a network." Right. But what I did was the smartest, not knowing it was smart thing I ever did, was I sang The Simpsons. Yeah. And that was, I got into SAG and I sang those three syllables. Yeah. And that kept me in income and insured health insurance for the rest of my life. (laughs) Like, who would know? The Simpsons. Yeah, those three syllables. Wow. So that actually generated that's crazy quite a bit aside from like the you know the smaller revenue that the uh but you know i i can't complain at all i've got i mean considering i expected no one to see the show yeah Yeah. i've gotten a good amount from the simpsons over many years when you look back on like and I, i don't like this question when i get it but like what what do you like most proud of a nightmare before christmas really i don't know really i mean in terms of life's work it's hard. Uh, yeah, know. that's hard. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I, and I probably would answer differently on different days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Nightmare is up there, right? Because I worked harder on that than most scores. You know, that was like a two-year project. You know, not a three-month project. Oh, you've done all these Tim ones. You did Sweepy Hollow too. Huh? Yeah, that's a crazy movie. I think seven, I love that movie. Seventeen films with him now. I think. Um, yeah, Sleepy Hollow was fun. I really enjoyed that. Are you guys pals? Well, I mean, we don't. He lives in England. I live here. We don't hang out together, oh. but I, I talk with him, and he's like, he's like, uh, like a relative, like a brother. Mm. You know, we went through a point when we got, I got really mad at him, and I, I, I left a movie, and we didn't speak for over a year. Oh, really? And uh, you know, it's like volatile. Mm-hmm. I, I think it had to happen somewhere mm-hmm. in this massively yeah. long period of time. You know, two personalities like us and mm-hmm. like me, and I was more hot headed back then than I, I'm better now. Yeah. Mellowed <laughs> a bit. Mellowed a bit. But the fact is, um, in that time, I missed him in the same way that, you know, I've had fights with my brother. We didn't speak to each other a long period of time. But at a certain point, that's like, I miss him. Yeah. It's my brother. Yeah. And uh, it was similar. Are you guys tight now, your brother? Yeah. Yeah. We are. And now, and, and when Tim and I, we've joked, we would end up like Hitchcock and Herman. Yeah. Because uh, the famous combination of Alfred Hitchcock, Bernard Herman, and they had a misunderstanding and they never spoke oh, again. Yeah. And we were like, right, we're going to end up like Hitchcock and Herman. And then we did, mm. but we came together again and we've never had a, an That's issue. That's nice. Yeah. And you seem to work a lot with Raimi too. 
Yeah, I'm working with him uh, coming up. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Doctor Strange too. How's he? He's nice. Is he a good guy? Oh, my God. Raimi is the nicest guy on the planet. I like that movie that your wife was in. Which one? Was that the first one? Simple Plan. That's where I met her. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. I like that movie. Yeah. I love Simple Plan. It was really good. And uh, Billy Bob Thornton was good. Yeah. And Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton. Yeah. It was a great little cast, you know? Yeah. Was it? Did he do that movie, The Gift? He did the gift. Yeah, I, I didn't work on the gift. I have a cameo in the gift. You do? Yeah, which mostly got cut out, thank God, because he put me with a fiddle in a swamp <laughs> as like a hillbilly fiddler with all this beard. <laughs> yeah. And Kate Blanchett is on the bridge, yeah. and I'm supposed to deliver lines. Mm. And I go, no, Sam, don't make me do lines. No, 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 buddy, you'll be fine. Here, I got you a vocal coach, because you have to do them in this Appalachian dialect. And I go... I can't fucking. <laughs> and I'm sitting there in the swamp yeah. with my fiddle trying to deliver lines, and I'm fucking it up over and over. And you're in a swamp. And I'm in a swamp. Yeah. And I, I reached, it was the one point I remember, Scotty, beam me up yeah, yeah. right now, Help. please. Yeah. Just send that beam down and go take me right up to the Enterprise. <laughs> I, I need to get out of here. <laughs> but you didn't use it? I, they, they, they just left me. They yeah. just left me. In and I... And I, all the actors are sitting there kind of watching the side going, oh, oh man, <laughs> this, this, is, this is a bit part. should take five feeling. minutes and we're all waiting. Uh, oh, it was the worst. I, but you I, forgave him for it? I forgave him for it, but I'll never do another um, acting part in my life. You did a few, right? But no. Not, I'm the worst actor on the planet. But you, Oh, the band was in a couple of Yeah, movies. but acting, yeah. I can't do. Yeah. And uh, I just... Um, if I have to speak lines on camera, every muscle in my face is a separate entity. It's like I'm a man, a Portuguese man of war right. with all these different so you organisms. Get, you get hyper self-conscious and yeah. nervous. My eyes don't know what my mouth, what, what's my right hand doing? Oh, shit. What's my left hand doing? Yes. There's so many things to think about. I know, yeah. What do I do with my hands? <laughs> what do I do with my hands? My, uh, there's a comedian that talks about that. Jim Norton, I think. I don't know yeah. how actors act natural. On the camera, and you've done it. I do it. You yeah. act really natural, and I don't it took a while. get it. I don't understand acting natural on camera is a beautiful art. That is like heart for me. That's like it would be as difficult as learning how to become a nuclear physicist. I guess so. Do you? But do you do anything to? Do you meditate or anything? I can't really meditate. Right. So and you when, don't do when, it. I, when I'm writing. I get into a state that's like that. Yeah, I think. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what it is. Like, I think it's just one of those things, either you can do it or you can't, the on-camera thing. Yeah, it's weird because, like, it's I see almost people, a natural thing. You know, and, and I see, like, comedians uh, frequently get on camera and go, wow, he's really good. Mm. You know, he's been on stage. Thing is a whole different thing. But here he's in front of a camera. He's really good, just it's natural. A weird thing. It's a weird thing to, to shut off all that stuff. Which I think it, your brain works the opposite way. You're yeah. turning on a lot of things. Whereas, like when you're in front of it, when you're on a set, and I got to just talk to you, you've got to be able to just talk to you, yeah, and not even do this. But, thing. but you look completely relaxed all the time on camera, like wow, like a, there's no camera there, like in Glow, you mean, or like on what in the yeah your show? Oh, my show. Yeah. yeah. Well, that took a while. I knew that first season would be like I'd look a little stilted, but then it got better. I didn't, didn't think you it? looked stilted. Oh, you you well, look just like natural. And um, <laughs> I'm always surprised, you know, it's like sometimes like common, you know, singers, different yeah. people like that, get them on camera and it's like, 
Really? Just they love it. Yeah. Just, I, I, I have to learn how to love it more. Like, because I talk to actors too. Like, they, there are people that really kind of like do the thing. You know, with me, I'm just like, I'm just going to focus on what I'm doing in front of me. I'm not sitting there going, like, the camera loves me. It's like, I just got to, <laughs> you know. And how actors do love scenes. Yeah, you know, weird. like yeah. a good love scene with I've, a camera four feet away from you. I've I've been thinking about I've done a couple of those and I you know I've really got to work on my um, my style with the uh, kissing. I think there's you got to be aware of their stuff. I, I I don't know how you do it. I yeah. just I all I can say is I'm in awe. Oh, I don't know how you do what you do. So it, it all makes sense. <laughs> like you're you're writing orchestral uh, things. I'm learning how. I'm trying to figure out how to smoke fish in my house. Okay, That's well, I'm... good things that we're not being forced to switch careers. <laughs> yeah. Right so what's the plan now? You're going to try to get those gigs back and get on the road and do the orchestra. I'm stuff just and... waiting for them to start up again. They it's... haven't started coming. At well. You? A little bit. I mean, we just announced Halloween. That's the first. Halloween oh, right. is the first date, live date. When you, where is that at? That's going to be at, uh, it's called the Bank of California Stadium. Here? Yeah. In LA? Yeah, downtown. Oh, great. I'd like to go that. You're going to run the movie and play the- Oh, and, yeah. Every song, note for note. And that's when people show up as characters? They and, often, yeah, yeah. Not always. And, but, and this is going to be in October? Hollow, yeah, I think the 29th of October, yeah. Halloween weekend. And that's something you like to do. Yeah. You know, yeah. the first time I thought it was impossible. I yeah. mean, it's here's how this started. It was yeah. like inadvertent. I agree to do the Elfman Burton suites. And at mm. some point, my agent who was producing, he says, oh, will you sing some songs from Nightmare for the Nightmare Suite? I go, yeah, I'll do that. But I, I, I say it without thinking about it. Yeah. And now, six months later, I'm creating all the suites super hard. And I get to the Nightmare Before Christmas and I do this all instrumental. And I call him up. I said, did I say I was going to sing? Yeah. And he goes, yeah. I go, oh, I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to sing. Goes, <laughs> yeah. Well, they've already advertised it. Uh, go, oh, fuck. Got to sing. And then I hadn't sung in 18 years. Wow. And I'm at Albert Hall doing a show that had never rehearsed in front of an audience. No trials. No In, in London? In London. Uh-huh. No idea if any of it's going to work. And I'm going to sing for the first time in 18 years. And I'm in front of the fucking stage door and going, I'm not going to be able to do this. I froze up. It's like, I am just going to like hit a bar and disappear and they'll, they won't know where to find me. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't yeah. walk out there. Uh, and the Helena worst. Bonham Carter, bless her heart, she was doing Sally. Yeah. And she was sitting on the floor, all kind of loose and floppy, <laughs> getting yeah. into ragdoll character. And she goes, Denny. I go, yeah. She goes, what's the matter? I go, I don't think I could walk out there. She goes, Denny, what the fuck? <laughs> and that's all I needed to hear. <laughs> It was like, exactly, thank you, what the fuck? And I walked out there, yeah. and I had the best time oh, of my life. Because they all love it. But I didn't know that. Oh, right. Oh, I'd right. never done of it course. before. Of course, yeah. And I'd never even performed in England. Yeah. I, I had images, the way my mind works is that I had an image of being tarred and feathered <laughs> and being driven out of town on a rail. That's that's how I imagine the English like audience. Part of a Tim Burton movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I get out there, and the audience was, oh my god! I forgot what it was like to have an audience that's. I don't need a safety net. They're my safety net. If I fuck up, they'll be fine with it. Yeah. It was like this feeling of like it's okay. Yeah. Do your thing. Yeah. If you goof up, do it again. Right. We'll be fine with it. Yeah. And. It, I, I'm so grateful to them. Yeah. That audience in London at the Albert Hall like got me rewired that I could come out on stage again. 
I yeah, can, I can do this. And that that has stuck with you. It stuck with me. I forgot how great it feels when you connect with your audience mm. and you feel it's okay to make a mistake. Yes. Yeah, it's great to have an audience and then to realize they're forgiving and they love what you do. They exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like they totally forgive you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you screw yeah. something up and yeah. you have to like recover. Yeah. Fine. Yeah, yeah. They're the it's same. almost better because then they're sort of like they saw something happen that didn't happen anywhere else. Exactly. <laughs> and as my wife says, you know, you're going out there without a net. Enjoy mm. that because that's the beauty of what you're doing. Yeah. And then I realized at that moment, they are my net. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Well, good, man. Well, yeah. I hope that a lot of that happens in the near future. Yeah, yeah. It was great talking to you, man. Hey, it was really fun. I really enjoyed this. Thanks, Thank pal. you. Yeah. yeah. That guy is busy, man. He's busy. Danny Elfman, big mess. The record will be out. The record. The new album. The C- Whatever. It's not a CD. It's not a record. It's, a- it's out next Friday. June 11th. You can get it wherever you get the music. Also, L.A. people are people willing to travel. His live Nightmare Before Christmas stage concert is back this year. That's on Friday, October 29th at Bank of California Stadium. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's, let's play. Monkey and the Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. 